in people's minds, the WTO seems to be a relatively recent thing, but it's not. And that's the trick about it. When they were having the Bretton Woods conference that we talked about last week, thinking about international cooperation and organization after the end of the Second World War and how they're going to go about this, they did actually envisage a complete set of institutions, including something that they wanted to call an international trade organization. So there was supposed to be a sort of fund that assists with development, which was the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development that then became the World Bank, as we said. There was supposed to be uh, the IMF uh, that dealt with balance of payments, crisis and capital flow problems and all of that. But there was also supposed to be something specifically for labor, which is the International Labor Organization that we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks. Uh, but crucially, there was supposed to be an organization for trade to facilitate and organize international trade. But this international trade organization actually never materialized, right? Because they didn't manage to agree on it. What happened instead was that there was, in 1948, the creation of a sort of sub-agreement to this that was supposed to be a precursor to setting up a system of international trade. This was the general agreement on trade and tariffs, right? So you've got, because they failed to agree on a large-scale uh, trade deal, they thought, okay, let's start with a set of basic rules, and then we take it from there rather swiftly. It didn't happen very swiftly because it took more than 50 years for the next step in the process to happen. So you were stuck then with the structure of the GATT, the General Agreement on, uh, on Trade and Tariffs. And we are, what we're going to do today is we're going to discuss a little bit the sort of logic behind these things and then how it evolved and what the system was trying to achieve. It is one of these things that in international, in international agreements and in international law, very often the sort of temporary, the temporary compromise becomes a very, very permanent situation because once you manage to agree on anything, because agreeing on stuff is so difficult, then it, it tends to become fairly, fairly long-standing. Let's move on to the, to the present day and think a little bit about the WTO and what it is supposed to do. The WTO is a sort of recognition at the highest level that trade is a good thing. Increased trade and increased liberalized trade is a positive thing for everybody. And this is completely assimilated by absolutely everybody. And I mean, we can discuss after whether anybody has got any reservations to this, but this is a fairly mainstream idea these days. So what you, what you do need then, once everybody agrees that we want more trade and tries to facilitate it, is a sort of system that allows people to negotiate trade agreements and to get things done in, you know, the fastest and less painful way as possible. Therefore, having an organization that whose whole purpose is the organization of liberalizing trade seems to be a good, a good idea. The WTO, in effect, is not the same type of institution as the World Bank and the IMF. The WTO is primarily, as they say in all their publications, a forum for negotiations. So it's more a central place where people come together to discuss how to increase and better their trade relations. The discussions that led to the creation of the WTO that was very protracted, 
Um, the WTO itself was created in the mid-90s, and it took a lot of effort even to get to that one. But, okay, it is a sort of bit of big talk shop. It's like a big negotiating forum, but it, is all, it, it does also contain a set of rules. And for you as lawyers and approaching this thing from a legal perspective, if you wish, then the, the, the set of rules it has as to how trade relations are governed is becoming more and more important. And the, the overriding purpose of the system is to help trade flow freely and in increased levels. And in order to do this, there needs to be some control that prevents disagreements or mediates disagreements and ensure the expansion of trade is actually done in the most beneficial way possible to everybody. And for that reason, it allows people to do the deals and then it allows people to work through the deals. Now there is a very significant dispute resolution uh, system within the WTO that will deal with all the inevitable, inevitable conflicts that come up. So the WTO itself was created, as we said, in the mid-90s, in 1995. We have had, since 1948, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. And what you had after that was a, a whole series of negotiations, multilateral negotiations, as to how to move things forward that actually led to the creation of the WTO. But the WTO wasn't supposed to be the end of the process. It has kind of died after the, the end of the 90s because further negotiations on liberalizing other types of trade haven't been very successful. And we're going to see this a bit later on because a, a, a big divide has opened between the interests of the developing nations and the interests of the developed nations. And efforts to sort of work their way through these differences haven't been very successful and the political will has been lacking in the last 10 years or so. Uh, but if even the WTO itself wasn't supposed to be the end of the process. This is an ongoing process. I guess the end of it is some sort of capitalist nirvana where everything's like a free market and everything's traded and everybody's rich and drives around in an SUV and all of that stuff. To go back to the prince, if, if we want to identify the principles of the trading system on which the gap was based, the WTO is based, we do have some core concepts and these core concepts interestingly uh, mirror many of the investor sister standards that we're used to when we look at bilateral investment treaties or other types of investment in instruments so a lot of the core principles as to how trained partners are treated has the same basis and the same rationale as to that employed so what are we talking about? We're talking about most favored avoidance of discrimination and how do you avoid discrimination? We're talking about national treatment. We're talking about most favored nation treatment. So some of the key concepts within that are those, right? The idea of national treatment, national treatment, that you don't discriminate against foreigners that you give foreigners and foreign businesses this, the same level of protection that you give nationals. In the context of trade, this means that both imported and domestically produced goods are treated equally. Foreign goods are allowed to enter the market without additional requirements. 
you've got the same ability for foreign companies to provide services. And then there's also protection for intellectual property rights for, for that belong to foreign corporations in the same way as you protect the intellectual property rights of domestic corporations. And intellectual property is a big component of the WTO agreement and the way the system has evolved. So national treatment is one thing, but additional to national treatment, you've got this idea of most favored nation treatment, the concept that you treat other people equally. So not only you do not give foreigners a worse deal than you give your nationals, but you also treat all the other foreigners equally, that you don't choose one nation that gets preferential treatment as opposed to everybody else. So under the WTO agreements, countries cannot discriminate between their trading partners. So all trading partners get the same deal. Now, this, this, is so, this is so important that it's actually ingrained in all the documents, and it is the first article of the GATT. Um, it's also a priority in the General Agreement on Trade and Services, the GATTs, right? And it's also a very important component of the agreement on, it's called TRIP-related aspects of intellectual property rights. That's the TRIPS agreement. So these are the three, three component agreements of the WTO. The GATT, so trade in goods, the GATS, trades and services, and the TRIPS agreement, which is intellectual property rights. Um, but of course, you know, you know, I mean, it's obvious from the history of the thing that the process of liberal liberalization and increased trade is a gradual process. It wasn't like a one-off that everybody, boom, immediately allows all foreign goods to come in without controls and is free to export whatever they want. So you've had... had gradual levels of liberalization, both in the volume and in the types of goods and services that are traded under this system. And it's been a very long process. If you think that all this began in uh, pretty much at the end of the Second World War, and we're still having disputes about the trade, but today it's been a very, very long road and it's still got some way to go. The, the way in which the system works is that as countries begin to participate in these processes, they agree that they will not necessarily abolish every restrictive measure that they've got for trade, but they will not make things worse. So countries that enter the system, they agree to certain maximum ceilings for the various trade restrictions that they're willing to impose, things like tariffs and so on. And then the idea is that gradually you bring this down. So at least on a very, on a very initial level, joining in this system carries with it a promise that you will not take any additional restrictive measures other than those that you've got at the moment. And then gradually, uh, there's a commitment that the, the, the agreements, the, the various barriers to trade, they begin to come down. So you'll see, for instance, if you look at uh, the levels of, and percentages of tariffs before the various uh, rounds of liberalization and after, they have been falling quite significantly. Bigger trading partners join in, in the agreements, then again, the various problems and restrictions in trade begin to come down. Why is the WTO so keen on these things, and what is this? What is meant to come out of greater openness in the, the trade uh, relations? Well, what's meant is greater competition 
both between firms at national level and between firms at national level and the ones abroad. And this increased global competition is meant to bring the benefits of an efficient market, you know, not only within particular uh, spheres within a nation state, but across the globe. So if, if you're wondering why do we consider uh, competition to be a good thing, well, the, the primary importance of competition is supposed to be consumer welfare. That prices, if firms are competing in a market, in a market prices come down. And if the bigger the market and the bigger the sources of competition, the greater the pressure on prices. Because if you've got the choice of multiple products from multiple producers from home and abroad, obviously you're going to choose the one that suits you best in terms of quality and in terms of price. But it's not only price. The idea is that increased competition leads to more efficient production. So you have increases in quality and decreases in price. So the consumer overall gets a better deal. This is a sort of baseline understanding that underlies that underlies every effort at trade liberalization. It's not just, you know, at the, at the big international level. Look at the EU, for instance. The whole point of the EU is increased competition between uh, various companies and producers in Europe as a whole. So people are not subject just to competitive within the UK, but they're subject to competitive pressures across Europe in order to, to produce more efficiently. Now, what is the consequence of producing more efficiently? Well, the idea is that if you produce more efficiently, then this is a beneficial thing for development and economic growth. Oh, well, if you export more and people want to buy your stuff, then you get more income, right? Then you can expand the production. There are better employment opportunities. There are better, uh, more money moving around the economy. So things get better overall. So all this is supposed to, so all this is supposed to spark a virtuous cycle of continuous improvement where previously you might have local production that wasn't particularly good if you open it up and people have got the chance to opt for a different product then you know there's pressure on the domestic producers to become better once they become better they become more successful both domestically and abroad and look you know they make more money they expand their production hire more people it's a good thing that's the, the whole process of economic development and uh, with it of course comes a greater case for economic reform across a bunch of sectors because the state has a role within this as well. It's not just that the, the job of the state is to liberalize trade and lower tariffs and allow competitive products to come in, but the state has then a role in various parts of these processes to enable people to work and produce more efficiently. So the idea is that by joining the WTO or joining in, you know, various international agreements that have to do with the liberalization of trade, then it puts policy, generally economic policy, on a path over. Because governments then start thinking, well, since we, we participate in an open system, what can we do to support our companies to become more efficient and more productive? Maybe we need better infrastructure. Maybe we need less bureaucracy. Maybe we need changes in the laws in the law 
that actually encourage more competition domestically, right? And if you read the the publications from that come from the WTO and you know various agencies that are interested in in trade liberalization, they will out of statistics and a lot of information as to how increased liberalization leads to improvements both directly right in the way that firms and uh, productive businesses behave but also in the sort of general policy environment once you start participating in the system it becomes very difficult to pursue restrictive policies across a range of economic sectors and you know if you believe the americans then it's not market liberalization then brings political liberalization for you know reasons that we've talked before that uh, if a market liberalizes then it sort of creates a, an entrepreneurial business-minded middle class that normally wants to, to have more more say in how things are run so it creates pressure it creates all this creates pressures for democratic um, changes and more accountability in the way things are governed and brings changes to the state and all of that stuff, right? So this is all, this is all the, an inter interlinking set of changes that is meant to be, you know, very positive and brings the whole world closer to the things that we used to in the West. So people were convinced about all of this business since a very long time ago. I mean, the, the idea of liberalization is very present in the Bretton Woods negotiations. The difference from uh, now, from those days, is that then they were more focused on real stuff, right? You know, trade and um, when they were thinking about money flows and aid and so on, they were thinking of them in more practical terms. Uh, discussions about liberalization more discussions about liberalization move from the 80s onwards to more, um, well, to things that are less concrete because there's been a lot of talk about liberalizing finance and capital flows and there's been a lot of uh, talk about the protection of intellectual property rights. So this, this sort of discussion and debate evolved from the more concrete, everyday, understandable stuff at the beginning of the process to the more sort of conceptual things that have to do either with the financial markets or with intellectual property uh, rights later on. So you can follow, even from the WTO website, you get a lot of information that allows you to follow the gradual evolution of the virus nego negotiating phases. So we don't, I mean, we don't need to go through this in a great level of detail, but what you had, you started from the from the agreements on goods, you moved on to agreements of services, and then initially you go to agreements about intellectual property rights. And you have a series of rounds of negotiations, and they usually have the name of the place where the negotiations were mainly held. So the most important stuff that are more recent to us, that are more recent to us, there was the Tokyo round that went from 1973 till 1979 and the negotiations there were about tariffs and lower tariffs and all of these things. And then you got the Uruguay round from 1986 to 1994 that dealt additionally with all this, again, intellectual property rights, agriculture 
and then the creation of the WTO. The sort of things contained in these agreements and in these negotiations carry a, a large list of measures. So even if you look at the things in the 70s, so even if you look at the things in the 70s, for instance, about the agreement reached in the Tokyo round, they were talking about uh, subsidies and what sort of what sort of things the government can subsidize, right? Because of course, government subsidies lower the prices of things, and it is in trade that if you're subsidizing some type of production and then these these products are exported, they're exported at much lower prices than normally they would be. So there's an issue. There's a distortion of trade if a product has a specific price due to government subsidies as opposed to the cost of its actual production. So reducing subsidies uh, has been a very significant issue in all negotiations. Then you've got technical barriers to trade, which are restrictions in freedom of establishment, the restrictions in uh, the way you can, market, you can market goods in foreign jurisdictions and so on. So there's a lot of things that the states have in place to prevent exports and prevent competing uh, businesses from coming in. So this is obviously something that needs to be tackled. Then you've got the standard stuff you would imagine that when we're talking about uh, customs duties, uh, we're talking about import licenses, um, how the customs value things. But you've got some additional things that you might not necessarily think about, things like government procurement, right? Because in a, in a sort of open trade environment, government should have the opportunity to source the best products at the best prices from a range of producers and not be limited to national production. So opening government procurement has been a very significant issue in negotiations. Um, you... You walk around, for instance, and you see that, you know, the police. What are what brand are the police cars, right? Are the police cars necessarily the brand, a brand that is the brand of the country that uh, we're in, or not? Well, not necessarily, but they used to be, right? In France, it used to be that all the police cars, and I think pretty much they still are. They're all like, uh, like uh, French brands. Opening up things like this can be very significant to trade. And especially the bigger the state in a country, the bigger purchaser is the state. So if the state does not take imports, then it's a very significant distortion. And then you've got a whole bunch of other things and getting into the agricultural products, which is a major problem that we're going to come back to. Um, so, okay, we've had that stuff for so long. And, you know, you, you're counting from the late, late 40s till today. There is, a, there is a discussion as to whether all this has been successful and whether the whole system has actually produced what it's meant to produce. Well, it is considered to be successful. Uh, the GATT, for instance, is credited with improving international trade in, with fantastic terms of international trade. And, and greater competition dynamics across the globe. And, you know, everybody is, everybody is more or less accepting of the fact that if it weren't for the gap, you wouldn't have the sort of, sort of international trade system that you've got today. 
Now, the WTO, you could say that the WTO is successful just by the very fact that it exists, right? Because the fact that such a long, long process of negotiation has ended up in the creation of a multilateral, fairly comprehensive agreement about trade is success in itself. And the things that were covered in the Uruguay round that ended up in the creation of the WTO, they go a lot further than the things that we were discussing before. You had, for instance, discussion about maritime services, right? Um, and market access in that field. You've got things that have to do with the environment. Um, you have things about liberalizing telecoms, right? Uh, then about various types of uh, of produced things like textiles and clothing that had been like a very big issue before, plus the significant introduction of uh, intellectual property rights and the way that intellectual property rights are very much uh, a key component of the system. And we've got a class on the class on the World Intellectual Property Organization and the way intellectual property rights work. We're going to see this. Let's try and, and summarize what WTO is supposed to do. The WTO agreements cover goods, services, and intellectual property. So the three components are the GATT, the GATS, and the TRIPS agreement. And they set out the principles of liberalization. And then they set out a list of exceptions that, for various reasons, countries might wish to derogate from a sort of headline policy, which is liberalization. So they, you've got commitments from the individual countries that participate in the system to lower tariffs and lower trade barriers and to keep their markets open. So it's supposed to be a one-directional process, right, towards ever-increasing liberalization. So it's not like back and forth. Anybody who joins in the system only looks forward. You've got some provision for exception, but this is only for, for countries experiencing certain shocks that we're going to see in a moment. Uh, the idea is one of ever-increasing liberalization. There is some provision for special treatment for developing countries, but you know the extent to which this is significant we can discuss. discuss. Um, and trade policies now are meant to be driven by the ideas that underlie the WTO system. So countries cannot create the trade policies in isolation of the WTO system. So they're meant to uh, adopt the mentality and participate in this. You can call this, it is called the system of rules. So when people talk about the WTO, they talk about trade rules and so on, but it's not... It's not like a very, it's not a particularly hard system of rules, but it is, it has its basis in international law in the sense that all this is treaty-based agreements. Perhaps the difference between um, the effect of treaty-based agreements generally and those trade the, the international agreements specifically, treaty agreements for the WTO, is that the WTO with its own dispute resolution mechanism that we will discuss later on. 